This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Young Turks, Activism from the Unfuck It Up Project, Citizen Radio, The Tom Martin Program, This Week in Blackness, The Progressive, and a speech by Tim Wise. And my apologies in advance to those who will be responsible for reprinting all the census forms that wrongly list white as one of the selections under race and ethnicity. On ABC's This Week, conservative mainstay George Will argued that the way to stop gun violence was to adopt controversial stop-and-frisk policing policies. The relative prevalence of stop-and-frisk in New York City, said Will, was why New York had a far lower rate of gun violence than Chicago. The president went to Chicago this week. Chicago has more gun homicides than New York, although New York has three times the population. What's the difference? The difference is different police measures. And New York, with a lot of controversies, had stop and frisk, and it's had a measurable effect on gun violence. It's not sexy. It's not a federal program. It's at the local level, and it works. Stop and frisk is definitely not sexy. The practice of stopping people, mostly young men of color, and searching them without probable cause is a lot of things. Racist for one, unconstitutional for another. But does it actually work to reduce gun violence? No, was the short answer suggested by an investigation last July by New York public radio station WNYC. The report found that out of 700,000 stops in 2011, only 770 guns were recovered, a little more than one gun in every thousand stops. It also found that most of those guns were found outside of the neighborhoods, the hot spots in the police language, where they were looking the hardest. The idea that Chicago should stop and frisk hundreds of thousands of people of color who aren't suspected of any criminal activity is popular among conservatives from the New York Post editorial page to Fox's Geraldo Rivera. But with no basis in fact, you have to wonder if it's just the aesthetics of the policy they like. Time when I wasn't really warned about how blackness is perceived with some malice and some scorn. But mama, I'm sure I didn't do nothing wrong. And then she said, that's not the point. I just don't want to see you gone. Growing up, it was me who was questioning the fact that being black, that I was always under some sort of attack. It was the bad kids, the fetish ones. I will be okay. And that's the same bullshit they used on Kamani Gray. 2013, how is not being white still a crime? And the innocent still get stopped at risk all the time. I'm American. I took that cane with some sort of rights that was undeniable whether my skin was so much fight, abuse of authoritative might, such a sight to see young folks scared to even fight for their rights. Guess what? We need more voices who are white. Let's unite to put this shit to bed and say goodnight. In the case of uh, Floyd v. New York City, uh, the constitutionality of stop and frisk is being questioned. And I like that it's being questioned because obviously uh, 90% of the stop and frisks are done on minorities, blacks and Latinos. Uh, so... There are a number of people that are testifying in this case, and one person who's testifying is Senator Eric Adams. And uh, he basically claims that back in 2010, uh, police commissioner Ray Kelly claimed that they were doing stop and frisks on minorities on purpose. Okay, so let me tell you what his exact testimony was. He says NYPD Commissioner Kelly stated that he targeted and focused on that group because he wanted to instill fear in them that every time that they left their homes, they could be stopped by police. Man, if that is true, and there's no reason to doubt him in this case, right? Because he's putting a lot on the line by saying that about the police commissioner. A lot. Mm -hmm. That's a huge risk to take, right? You just... 
Man, that's devastating. Devastating quote. Now, you might think, like, Jen, come on, what are you, naive? You didn't know that's what they were doing? It's not about that. It's about everybody else doing Because if you ask, oh, if you ask the police commissioner now and the mayor, it's us? No. We love blacks and Latinos. The citizens of our fine city here, absolutely not. They would be outraged and all this fake outrage is center. But yeah. behind the scenes, I mean, think about that, man. Look, Anna told you 90% of the stop and frisks are on minorities. But those are disproportionate with number of minorities in New York City. Now, it's the number of minorities are somewhere in the ballpark of about 50%. I think they're a little less. I think they're in the 40s, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But think about that. Nearly half of your city is Latinos and blacks, and you think, I'm going to put fear in their heart. Right. I'm you assume I'm that nearly 50% of your city are criminals based on their race, and that your job is not to protect them, but to put fear in their heart. Yes. Um, Adams actually serves New York's 20th district, and he says that he's had numerous uh, situations where young black people will come to his uh, you know, office and say, this is happening to me. Is this right? Did they legally search me? And he says some um, you know, black boys will come in and say, look, authorities like searched me in my private parts. I feel like I was violated. I didn't have any drugs on me. I didn't have any weapon on me. I didn't do anything wrong. There was, you know, no suspicious activity happening. And this is what, you know, this is what's going on. Is it right? Is it legal? And unfortunately, this is continuing to happen. And I'm glad that there's a case that's addressing this and addressing the constitutionality of it so we can actually finally address the problem and realize that this is wrong. These are not the type of searches that authorities should be doing. And, and look, man, it's, you know, how we talk about drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, now it puts fear into everybody. Yes. You know, because we sometimes, oftentimes hit people that we, we don't know who we're hitting, so it becomes almost like random. You're being shocked over and over again. Well, that's what's happening to minorities who stop and frisk in New York City. They're not being killed, but constantly you stop and you're assumed to be a criminal, you're shaken down, you're harassed, and this is supposed to be your city. Again, they're supposed to be protecting you, and they're doing the exact opposite. And it's just a goddamn crime what they do. Right, and, and, and it's a And I guess they, from their perspective, they're like, well, if we protect a couple of white people, you know, mm -hmm. and, and the price for that is intimidating half of our population, well, who cares, right? Well, we were just a little extra safer for white people. And these are the same guys who have the same... You know, headquarters in downtown where they, you know, have the video cameras set up, et cetera, and they're in the same building as JP Morgan and all the different banks. And then the commissioner gets money from the banks for his different organizations, which winds up throwing lavish parties, et cetera, et cetera. So who are they they're here to protect? They're not here to protect us. They're here to protect and serve, you know, the rich people in Manhattan who pay for all their stuff. So they're not our police force. And so, you know, you say that, I guess that's controversial in New York and they would be outraged. Well, we're outraged by your goddamn actions.
Here at Best of the Left, we're showing our commitment to activism with a segment in partnership with the Unfuck It Up Project. Created out of the viral response to comedian Katie Goodman's video, I Didn't Fuck It Up, Goodman and project director Katie Klebusik encourage involvement over apathy by highlighting people and organizations that are doing good for their communities and the world. Today's campaign, Stop and Frisk. Now, I get that today's action sounds very New York-centric, but targeted policing laws are spreading across the country using New York as a template. So with the Justice Department stepping into the center of constitutional rights lawsuit against the NYPD stop-and-frisk policy, the issue has received widespread coverage. Petitions abound, sponsored by organizations such as Change.org, Move On, Color of Change, and others. Those of you who don't live in New York should certainly sign whatever you can get your hands on. For listeners in New York, the New York Civil Liberties Union has a simple yet extremely important way to insist in bringing down this discriminatory policy. They've created a stop-and-frisk watch app available at their website or through your app store. You can record, listen, and report incidents through the app, which is super easy to use. The how-to video and detailed listing of your rights are at your fingertips. The report function sends data to the NYCLU for use in holding the NYPD accountable. The listen function sends a notice to users when people in their vicinity are being stopped, making it simple and automatic to connect community groups who monitor police activity. The more information groups like the NYCLU have, the more likely the Justice Department monitor will rule stop and frisk unconstitutional. There's no substitute for individuals paying attention and reporting what they see while going about their normal daily routines. Links to the petition and actions will be in the show notes at all the usual places via your smartphone app or at the Best of the Left website. Reminders, additional info, and actions not included in these segments will be at the Best of the Left Facebook page. And if you have an activism opportunity or person worthy of highlighting, visit the Unfuck It Up Facebook page and post the info for a nomination or for use on the show. this story i read and was like how the fuck is this not a story on every news show in the country like why aren't they talking about this on meet the press you yeah. know so uh, well yeah i i know why but it should be talked about so this is from Courthouse News. Um, Chicago police terrorized six children in the wrong apartment, demanding at gunpoint that an 11-month-old show his hands and telling one child, this is what happens when your grandma sells crack. The family claims in court. Uh, lead plaintiffs Charlene and Samuel Hawley sued Chicago police officer Patrick Kinney and eight John Doe's in federal court on their own behalf and for their children, uh, and for their children and children, that must be a typo. The six children were 11 months to 13 years old at the time. Mm. Plaintiffs Connie and Michael Robinson are Charlene Holly's daughters. So this is what happened on November 29th, 2012, the early evening hours. Uh, Charlene Holly was in the first floor of their apartment in the front room helping one of the children. They just refer to the children as child number one, child number two, and child number four, and child number five, rehearse songs for their church choir. Charlene was also caring for child number three, who was 11 months old. Child number six was in the upstairs apartment alone. 
Charlene and the children heard a loud boom outside and a voice cry out across the street. Defendants officers John Doe number one through eight bust through the door to the first floor apartment dressed in army fatigues and pointing guns at Charlene and the children. The officers yell at Charlene and the children to get on the ground. The officers refer to Charlene and the children as motherfuckers numerous times. Afraid of the guns being pointed at them, children number one, two, four, and five ran to a back bedroom in fear of the officers. In response to the defendant's order to get on the ground, Charlene got down on the floor. A defendant officer told Charlene to put the baby down, so Charlene set child number three down beside her. The officers yelled at Charlene to get child number three's hands where they could see them. After attempting to show the officers that the 11-month-old's hands were empty, Charlene asked the officers, what is this about? To which they replied, shut the fuck up. Samuel Holly says he asked the police what they were doing and called the 111th Street Police Station asking for a white shirt to come explain the situation, but no supervisor ever came to the house. Charlene continually asked what the purpose of the detention was, the complaint states. Finally, an officer produced a warrant and handed it to Charlene. The warrant was for an individual named Sedwick M. Reavers, and the premise, and the premises listed was the second floor apartment located at 106040 South Prairie Avenue, a yellow brick two-flat building with the numbers 10... 6040 on the front of the building. In other words, the warrant clearly identified the proper location as the second floor apartment. Charlene Samuel and the children were in the first floor apartment. Oh my god. As the officers were detaining Charlene Samuel and children's number one through five in the first floor apartment, they also proceeded to the second floor apartment where child number six was home alone. Child number six was 13 years old at the time of the incident. The officers approached child number six in a bedroom, turned out the lights... They began, they began flashing red lights at the child, calling him motherfucker, placing him in plastic handcuffs and telling him, quote, I started to tase your grandmother and cousins and, quote, this is what happens when your grandma sells crack. Child number six begged the officers not to hurt his family in the apartment below and stated that his grandmother did not sell crack. The man named in the warrant, Sedwick Reavers, was, quote, <laughs> sitting in a squad car outside of 106040 South Prairie through the entire incident, according to the complaint. The family claims, and this is even more fucked up, the following day, Charlene discovered the family dog, Samson, not in the basement where they, the family kept him, but in an upstairs laundry room. Samson could not have reached a laundry room without human assistance. On information and belief, defendant officers dragged and choked Samson from the basement with the dog pole and left him in the upstairs laundry room unattended where he died. Samuel Hawley also went to the police station the day after, after the warrantless search to complain, but, quote, despite his numerous calls the night before, was told that he could not make a complaint and he should have made a complaint last night, the family says. So they're seeking punitive damages now. But imagine if that shit happened in the suburbs. Imagine if that shit happened in a wealthy neighborhood. I mean, it wouldn't. It wouldn't happen. But that's the sort of two-tier reality we have right now, where privileged white bloggers can be like, we don't live in a police state. But if you pose that same question to, like, a poor family living, a poor black family living in Southside Chicago, they will probably respond very differently and have a very different attitude towards police officers. Or Forrest Whitaker, which we will get to in a second. Um... I, when you first started that story, I was like coming up with a bit in my head, you know, cause that's kind of like what I do on the show. I was like, all right, so I'm going to do like a, 
an impersonation of the cop, and he's going to be like, well, well, clearly this drug dealer put on the grandma costume, and I was going to do a really funny thing. And then it just kept going, and like when it got to the dog, like tears started welling up my eye, and I was like... I don't think I can do the, I don't think I can do the wearing the grandma mask bit. Like, what are you thinking that you're calling like 11 and 13 year olds motherfuckers? Like, what tough guy act do you think you're putting on right now? Right. Um, How much does your wife hate you that you're taking it out on an 11 year old? I guess is what I'm trying to say. Well, I think a lot of this treating as, you know, especially young men of color, like. Or the dog. It's like you're a sociopath. You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing. It's bad enough when they, like, beat the shit out of uh, a black guy and they're like, oh, that was the wrong guy. It's never going to be the dog. So if you are physically assaulting an animal, it has nothing to do with even, like, oh, I thought this was a different guy. You just have, like, severe fucking mental and rage Well, we issues. see this in war, right? Like, when soldiers are so hyped yeah, up yeah, on, yeah, like, yeah. you know, adrenaline and they've so dehumanized the enemy, like, they don't just kill and rape. They, like, burn everything. They, like, kill animals. Right. They, they're just in a frenzy yeah, at that point. That's really and point. that's not to excuse it. That's just what happens in combat situations, except this is happening domestically. Yeah. Um, and it's happening against people of color, not exclusively people of color. It happens, you know, but it, it's a different kind of um, brutality. Right. And I think I think part of the the whole thing about treating, you know, 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds like they are hardened criminals is when you dehumanize an entire community, I think you start to like just group people together regardless of like age or do we even have the right address? Yeah. You know, it's just like, fuck that. Well, you did All some- of these people are on the radar. Well, but it's kind of like what we were talking about with like veganism in the beginning, right? Where it's like, you know, it. Convincing other officers, your friends, you know, that not all black people are the enemy or that, you know, every time you hear someone say something fucking racist, like in the locker room, but a lot like, of shooting times, Jamie, it's down. not like a, a philosophical conversation like that. It's a practical thing where it's like, we have a quota. We have an arrest quota. We got to go out there. We got to arrest 15 guys today. Who are the easiest guys to arrest? The fucking drug dealers or anybody we can say was a drug dealer, right? right? Young black men. Just go out, round them up. And then it, it's almost like it becomes part of the mechanism in this institution where it's like, it's not an active decision. I'm waking up. I'm going to be a fucking racist today. Right. Man, I think about what a spoiled white shit I am. Where like, I remember me and all of my friends at like the end of the month, like growing up in New Jersey, would be like, man, watch out for all the cops. They got to get their fucking quota in with the speeding ticket. Like, they'll pull you over for going 10 miles over the limit as opposed to being in the fucking inner city. Like, watch out for cops' quota. I might be shot dead. Yeah, yeah. It's like a different planet. I know. Um, so... Well, I wanted to go into that racism thing that Tennessee wrote because a lot of people talked about that. Okay. Um, where... Because it really ties into what you were saying. So, last month at an upscale deli in New York City, uh, Forrest Whitaker was stopped and frisked uh, by this deli owner, Forrest Whitaker, very famous a- actor, Oscar winner, I believe. Um, and... You know, Tennessee essentially wrote a piece about, you know, he used to go to this deli um, and he knew the people and the people did not seem racist and they were like sincerely, incredibly apologetic. And the the sort of thesis of his article, I mean, what's the best way to, to sum it up? It's kind of that 
we, we think of racists and racism as like people who walk down the street using the N-word. It was what I was just said about the police officers. Yeah. It, it's not a conscious decision that you wake up and you're like, I'm going to be a racist today. It's that there are things like institutional racism. There are just, we were talking about Stereo- like, deep-seated stereotypes. Deep, yeah. Uh, different realities, different planets for white people and people of color where yep. white people are so unaware of their own privilege that they... It's not a conscious decision to be a racist. It's like so deeply woven into the fabric that they aren't aware that they're being racist and making assumptions and and privy to privilege. And they get very defensive when it's it's brought up because he said this when he was on um, Melissa Harris Perry's show. Being accused of being a racist is the worst thing you can be accused of. It's like up there with being accused of being a pedophile. So nobody wants to acknowledge that they can be a racist or that they benefit from racism. Jesse Meyerson talked about this in an excellent field piece he did for us about uh, gentrification. Yep. Where, I mean, everybody who's white, we are all privy to, to white privilege. And it's very important to acknowledge that because, you know, as Jamie said, I, I'm sure our listeners don't wake up and, you know, start using the N-word and, like, you know, terrorizing black people. And they would probably think, I'm not a racist person because I see, I think black people are equal to me. Yeah, but, like, you know, I mean, affirmative action. Like, I remember having conversations with people who had black friends who considered themselves liberal, like in New Jersey. And suddenly you'd bring up, like, affirmative action, which is something that affects them. And they go, well, I mean, look, I'm not racist. Like, I don't, like you know, judge black people. I don't hate black people. I have a black friend, but like, you know, affirmative action is like, like, isn't that sort of racist? You know what I mean? And like, like shit like that. Not even that obvious sometimes. Like just taking certain things for granted, like being able to walk into a mall and not get followed by security, being able to walk up to a police officer and ask for directions without being consumed by fear. You know, just certain things that white people are privileged. So like if I'm getting followed around in a deli and I have not won an Oscar like Forrest Whitaker, I'm like, I bet they know me from the television. Whereas Forrest Whitaker, who is an Oscar winner, is getting followed around. And his first thought isn't, oh, I wonder if this guy recognizes me from movies. His first thought is, oh, am I about to get, does this guy think I'm getting shoplifted? I mean, yeah, uh, and you know, Tennessee pointed out, when, when has a white president uh, been accused of not being an American? When has a white Harvard professor gotten arrested for trying to get into his own house in yeah. a wealthy suburb Yeah, and the Boston point Tennessee was making was there's no status that people of color can obtain in this country where that shadow falls away. Right. President of the United States. He still gets it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's really hard for, for white people. I would say it's impossible for white people to ever fully understand what that's like. Yeah, you can try to be as empathetic as possible. My only advice is to not be so reflexively um, Def- defensive yeah. about, especially when white privilege is brought up, because... You know, even if you are a poor white person who can't see any obvious ways that you benefit from institutional racism, you definitely do. <laughs> like, and, and, there, like, if you are accused of the exact same crime as a black person, like, chances are you're going to get a lesser sentence than the black person. Yeah. Um, Just statistically. Yeah. And, and now, does that mean, because I know a lot of you are poor white people, um, does that mean that you can't complain that you aren't being fucked over by the government? No. Absolutely not. And in fact, I would implore you to join forces. <laughs> um, but um, that does mean that even though you are struggling, uh, it behooves 
the people in Washington for us to be pitted against each other. So when someone posts a status about institutionalized racism, that doesn't mean you have to get mad and defensive and write, what about poor white people? We know. Yeah. We know. And actually that language you just used, like the infighting language is often used to tell people who are talking about stuff like race to sh- to shut up because they're distracting from the class movement. Right. Which is right. like, we can talk about class war while also acknowledging that there is profound institutional racism in this right. country. You don't have to say like, we have to be post-racial, whatever the fuck that means. I got questions, I need answers. Still trying to figure out what's the matter with Kansas. Kids got the same rights, different chances. He who inherits advantage advances. We post-racial like an airport scan is. I got cabbies wanting me where the clan is. Shudder when they utter double standards. Eating away at the discourse like cancer. Far from post-racial, so hateful. Hate speech gets a man a job on cable. Fly Foxes, lost toxic, while watching optics through their eye sockets, myopic. The president is black, so he's an X Factor. We on the next chapter, they try to step backwards. Class war created, more the poor hated. Success rate and skin color still correlated. Zach Beecham is with us. He's a reporter and blogger with Think Progress and editor of TP Ideas, thinkprogress.org, the website. Zach, am I pronouncing your name right? Yeah, you got it. Very cool. few people do, so well done. Okay, thank you. Uh, you wrote this extraordinary piece, the inside story of the Harvard dissertation that became too racist for heritage. Um, the story of this fellow who had uh, co-authored, I guess, the, the Heritage Foundation's piece, uh, hit piece on the immigration bill, and, and one of his premises was that uh, uh, people of... Uh, brown skin and Hispanic descent will never generationally catch up with white people because that's the way they're born. And you took this apart brilliantly. I, uh, can you tell us, first of all, tell us a little bit about this guy and how he got to Heritage and how, you know, what this, what the story was on this? Sure. So the background is that this guy, Jason Richwine, he got his PhD from Harvard in 2009, which he did concomitantly at the American Enterprise Institute, which is the other big conservative think tank in D.C. So he was at the American Enterprise Institute, uh, and then once his fellowship there ended, he moved over to Heritage to do math, basically essentially a quantitative job. Mm. And that job led him to co-author their report, which has been widely debunked since on the cost of the comprehensive immigration bill that are currently in the Senate right now. Uh, so a researcher at the Washington Post, a blogger named Dylan Matthews, dug up his old dissertation from Harvard, and it turns out the dissertation posited that Hispanics will always, for the foreseeable future, have a lower IQ than what he terms native whites. It's unclear. Those terms aren't poorly, are very poorly defined right. uh, in the dissertation, and we can get into that later. But the point is this became a huge controversy because the policy suggestions in Rich Wine's dissertation are very similar to the policy suggestions in the Heritage Report. So Heritage, who wanted Congress to have to cite a report, couldn't deal with the taint of racism and had to dismiss Richwine, which led to the question I, I consult in my piece, which is, if it's the case that this report is really so bad that Heritage uh, and, and Richwine had to part ways in order for the report to be untainted, then how on earth did it make it through Harvard? Right. And and which, and 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 which also, I mean, you know, Pat Buchanan came out the other day and said yes and, and threw some statistics out about I believe it was college graduation or enrollment rates among Asians, whites, Hispanics, African Americans, and that seemed to support. I mean, he came out in support of, of rich wine, and and there is this you know racist 
bunch that that are laying out these arguments that were made back in the 1920s to justify uh, uh, what's the word that we had for for the racial purity laws and eugenics. Eugenics. Thank you very much um, for eugenics, which were you know our posters actually were quoted and picked up by Hitler in his in his eugenics program and and which ultimately became his genocide program and uh, how does one rebut these so the basic fact of the matter is that whenever you talk to the people that will make this argument they'll claim to be disinterested scholars they're just doing research and if you try to press them on their research they'll say look this math is is too difficult for you you don't understand the discipline of psychometrics as they refer to it the real truth of the matter is that it's not very complicated to understand there's a lot of academic, there's, there's a bunch of math surrounding these things, but you don't need to be an expert in math to see the conceptual flaws and, and to evaluate the other readers that's in this field. Essentially, so, what you need to know is that they make arguments about the essentially the genetic component of intelligence, which aren't supported by racial categories, because it's hard to make racial categories uh, into genetic categories in the first place. It's also the case that a lot of subsequent research has shown that any gap, and there is a gap on IQ scores between what we generally identify as people being of different races, is usually attributable in most cases as a group phenomenon to extreme poverty. That is to say when people, and this should be surprising to nobody, but when people are raised in, in deprivation, exposed to pollution and high-stress environments on their kids, it hurts their brain development. As a consequence, they're likely to be less intelligent as they grow up. That's not surprising, but the point is that's an argument for extreme and, and, and very serious redistribution of wealth and addressing the consequences of poverty. It's not evidence that anyone is genetically less smart than anyone else or that racial categories are even meaningful. It's just that some people are poorer than others, and poverty is bad. Right, and, and poverty and exposure to lead and lead paint and, and I mean, all you do is just a whole, and save just even the stress of poverty associated with poverty jacks up cortisol levels in pregnant women, which changes the, the fetal brain development. I mean, Joseph Chilton Pierce wrote an entire book about that back 15, 20 years ago. Um, this is, you know, well-established science. Uh, really what we're looking at and what Pat Buchanan seems to be celebrating is 400 years uh, arguably, um, maybe going on 500 years of white privilege on the North American continent, is it not? Yeah, I mean, the way that this research works is the people, and a lot of them, I think Jason Richwine is one of these people, I think he really thinks that he's doing important and good science and that he really genuinely stresses that he doesn't believe that there's any moral cast to his work. Right. Uh, the problem is that uh, it's very easy to make that argument when you're a white guy. And when you're a white guy, you've, and, and a white, um, particularly a white guy from a dominant class in a country that is to say what we now understood as white, um, particularly South, many South European people, the Irish and, and Jews were in the 1920s, you know, in the eugenics movement you referenced earlier, mm-hmm. always taken to be less intelligent according to this very same line of research. But anyway, if you're from a privileged white male class today, it's very easy to overlook the implications of your research and say, look, I don't mean for it to say that one race is superior than the other, but the fact of the matter is that claims about the inherent racial superior or inherent genetic superiority of one grouping of people referred to as a race historically have been deployed for particularly nefarious ends. That's mm-hmm. not to say that we shouldn't do research on why the score gap exists. In fact, if we enforced a total taboo on research on the link between race and IQ, we wouldn't have been able to learn that it's likely an environmental, almost certainly entirely an environmental thing in the first place. Right. So it's, it's, it's a good place for very careful scholarship that isn't focusing and fixating on genetic explanations to the exclusion of current research about how IQ works, 
and how genetics work and so on and so forth. The problem with a lot of this genetic research is that it's not very careful work, and as a consequence, it ends up bolstering, as you said earlier, the forces of white privilege, yeah. even if unconsciously and unintentionally. It well, and, and, and you'd, you'd think that just the sliding time window would be evident to anybody who pretends to be a scholar. I mean, there were literally books published in the 1860s and 1870s following the, the large uh, Irish migration to the United States of poor Irish people um, about the genetic inferiority of the Irish. And you know what's wrong with the Irish, and and you know how they've you know they're 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 and then similarly there were books published certainly lots and lots of uh, newspaper magazine articles the Saturday Evening Post I believe they had one in the 1890s about the genetic inferiority of the of the Italians because there was a large wave of Italian immigration in the United States and basically what these and these were quote white people right but they were poor people and so they weren't performing as well in school and they were more involved with crime and organized crime because they were poor people because they were being discriminated against uh, how can we not learn from the lessons of our own damn country i don't mean a damn country you, you know what i mean our own damn lessons excuse me i i i see what you're saying it's historically we should have un we should understand how this research works yes and what and the ways in which science can be complicit in morally problematic ways of thinking. I mean, look at the people who end up defending Rushwine over the course of time. Yeah. Right? Like one of the most infamous ones is John Derbyshire, a former writer for National Review, who was fired for saying that people should avoid large groups of blacks because essentially they're scary and more prone to crime, among other very racist things that he wrote in this piece. There are better ways of spending your time than defending the There was one guy decided to start a a Tumblr, and it was called "This Is Black Privilege." And you might go, "What? What are you talking about?" On Tumblr, there are lots of different types of uh, different uh, white uh, uh, Tumblrs talking about white privilege and stuff like that. And so apparently, someone got tired of it. Some dude got tired of it. It was like, "No, I will not have this. I will stand up and and show you guys what this situation." is okay and so he started to post what black privilege was and black privilege looks like uh like example uh black privilege is being able to follow this this uh follow the this is white privilege blog but following this blog i.e the this is black privilege blog would be racist for white people and he tags it black privilege racism. Uh, then another one. Black privilege means being public, uh, publicly admitted, uh, that blacks are superior to whites in certain pursuits, i.e. basketball. It can never be publicly admitted that whites are superior to blacks in other pursuits, i.e. winning Nobel prizes in science. Oh no. <sighs> Uh, black privilege means growing up with the idea of racial identity and pride, yet racial pride in whites constitutes a grave evil. Say I'm white and I'm proud and you are a national socialist. Black privilege means being able to work for explicitly racial goals while whites may not. Black mm -hmm. privilege means always being right in matters of race between blacks and whites. <laughs> blacks must always be regarded as the injured party or, or the oppressed. I like I like this one actually. Black privilege is having every stupid dance become a phenomenon. 
Because of the stereotype, all black people have rhythm. Non-black people are quick to jump on the bandwagon because it is automatically deemed cool. This person sounds hurt. Who hurt you? Oh, dear. Black privilege is having mainstream multimedia obsessed with you. Blacks only make up 12% of the population, but make up an estimated 50% of the news. What? Do you want to know what my favorite thing is in the world? Is is just unnuanced apolitical critique. It's my favorite. This uninformed, ignorant-ass critique. I've never read a book in my life, and I have opinions, and I'm going to start a Tumblr blog about it. You, welcome to the internet. I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, black privilege means being able to silence and intimidate whites by calling them racist. Whites can't silence and intimidate blacks because that would be racist. What? Oh, God. What? What's happening? What's happening? I taste pennies. What's happening? Well, this is real. Well, it's true. We don't have the we don't have the big white dude. It's not as intimidating as the big black dude, and that's privilege. So Twitter did not take kindly to this. Uh oh. Uh oh. The internet. Did someone just go internet? Sick him. Well, it's, it, it, it hit. It hit. It hit Twitter, and upon it hitting Twitter, a lot of folks weighed in. La. Did I say a lot of a lot of folks weighed in. And, uh, and decide to go at it a little bit of a different way than that dude probably thought. Like, African and Proud says, uh, black privilege is having ancestors like Marcus Garvey, uh, Nandi, uh, uh, Nandi, Queen Nanny, uh, Malcolm X, who laid their lives down in advance of our people. It's probably not what, the, what he was talking about. Uh, <laughs> probably not what, uh, what's going on there. Uh, and, uh, and, and people like, and I, I might have, I might have, I might have jumped in. Oh dear. I was, here's the thing. I didn't mean to. <laughs> I hit a, the whole goal of, the, of this when I, when I jumped in was to just say something like cute, right? Because I saw people like really going in and then like, uh, Shelby Knox, uh, actually it was, had tweeted out, uh, she was like, and white people, when I say take a seat and learn from the black privilege tag, I mean take a damn seat. Not our, not our place to comment, which was hilarious. Uh, but not a lot of people decided <laughs> to jump in. Uh, Grace is human. That was like, black privilege is white. Folks, explaining how terrible racism is to you instead of to other white folks. <laughs> and so this just goes on. So people decide to go in, and then, like I, like I said, I I weighed in by accident because I what I wanted to do was make jokes about it. That was my whole point, Dasha. I had no intentions of actually taking it anywhere near seriously because it's ridiculous. This is silly. Black pri- like, really, black privilege, Tumblr? This is literally idiotic. But then something weird happened. I couldn't make that many jokes. I just, it, I just didn't have it. Every time I tried to make a joke, I realized that like I was actually way more annoyed than I thought I was. Uh, and so I, I, I weighed in. As like black privilege is being told, I should stop mentioning black things if I want success. Be black, just not that black. Be diet black. Um. <laughs> Black Zero, maybe? No? Oh. Black Zero, delicious. <laughs> black Zero, so great. Wade Brady is so Black Zero. Hey, I totally can get oh. with him. I can totally get with that. I, that that's the type of black. like black, right. but without all of the all the bad things. And then, all of a sudden, and then all of a sudden they saw the Chappelle sketch. Oh! Oh, no! Are you telling me he was really black the whole time? <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm ingesting all this blackness thinking there was no calories. <laughs> then to find out he was pure black. The funny thing about about that about that skit, by the way, is that I've heard two interpretations of it. 
One is that, oh, it was funny that Wayne Brady was like acting like a hard ass like one time and that's what made it funny was the irony of it. And then the other was like, oh my God, he's been hiding this whole time. <laughs> Lord. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And, and, it's, and it's continued. There's, uh, uh, I, I pointed out just a couple things, just like, like I said, I tried to be funny and then I just couldn't, uh, really do it. And then like, I just pointed out uh, just a few things that I thought, uh, the constituted that maybe maybe people hadn't really thought about, like black privilege is having the joy of being American while not being accepted as American. Uh, black privilege is knowing that my regular voice is considered scary and having to adjust the tone if I don't want to seem threatening. Black privilege is knowing that any slang I use isn't unique or, or uh, isn't a unique attribute of me, but indicative of how an entire people speaks. Black privilege is genuinely praying, uh, praying a high-profile crime isn't conducted by a Negro because, well, America. <laughs> Black privilege is having to give a, give a PowerPoint presentation on history anytime a systemic or institutionalized issue concerning blacks arises. Black privilege is having to genuinely be surprised anytime, uh, no, black privilege is having folks be genuinely surprised anytime you show a grasp of a complicated concept because it's, you know, it's so unexpected. Black privilege is being trained as a preteen on what to do when stopped by the police. Step one, live. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that actually hurts my heart. Actually, people tweeted at me that I just hurt their heart. Yeah, that... That, 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 that one person flat out said, I teared up after that. And oh. I was like, like, this is, I'm, like I'm just like, like if, you want, if you want to talk about like what, like what comes along with it, we can do this. And like, I, like for me personally, I, like, I realized that I wasn't even being j- funny. At that point, I was just like, "You really want it? Here you go. We can talk about it. We, I, I can give you what this is." And then, so while I'm out in Philly, uh, uh, we went to the zoo, and when we come, like my, my, my uh, when we went out to the zoo in Philly, it's overpacked. Like, every, like, like they, have, they have like three or four different uh, uh, parking lots, and they're all packed. Like, just like this, uh, in the last parking lot that isn't already full. Uh, you had like a line to even get in the parking lot. So like, I was like, no, we were like, maybe we won't go to the dumb zoo, which I would have preferred, but we start to drive away and like about four or five blocks away from the zoo, uh, there is, uh, there, there's a nice little neighborhood there. Uh, I, at first I thought it seemed like it was West Philly, but some people said that it's referred to as City University, City, uh, University City or something like that. And there was parking over there. And so we found the parking over there parked. And when I sat there, I was like, oh, oh, we're in the hood. Oh, that's why there's parking here. No one. Oh, you guys aren't willing to walk into the hood and park because you're okay, cool. But when we came back from the uh, the supermarket, I saw I was I, we were very thirsty. We'd been walking around. It was a beautiful day Sunday. It was hot. We had been walking around for a few hours. We wanted some soda. And, well, and at first we were gonna buy an overpriced soda, but we're like, no, let's go buy a bodega. We passed by like a bodega on the way here. I go to go into the bodega. The first bodega I, I stop at. I, 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 my wife goes, starts to go in and go, never mind. Because it was, I think, four o'clock in the afternoon, and it ha- it was completely bulletproof covered. That was it. There was no way of, of touching any, anything you actually wanted in there. And I was like, no, I did not do that. If you're going to treat me like I'm a goddamn animal, I'm not going into your, your, your rest of your store. All right? Uh, and so we, we walked to the next, uh, super, uh, bodega. The next bodega we get to, I start to open the door and I look down and I see a sign. And I, the sign says, uh, you will be called, uh, like, uh, no, uh, ski masks or hoodies allowed in the store. If hey, you what? No ski masks and hoodies al- are That's to be true. worn inside the store. If you do so, uh, you are trespassing and we will have uh, the uh, police call, uh, we'll, we will call 911 on you. 
Is that uh, legal? A hoodie, a hoodie, and a ski mask. Aren't they different things, though? It's weird that you say that, Aaron. Because a ski mask obscures your entire face, and in some instances, your eyes, so that nobody can see you. But a hoodie can just be rolled back so that everyone can see your entire face. Interesting, you say that, Aaron Rand Freeman. Because I thought that they were different. Because, like, please note, the the image that was on there, I actually posted it on Instagram, and uh, and I posted it on my Facebook wall. The image there, they have, like, a full-on, like, cops and robbers-style ski mask. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and then they have someone wearing a hoodie. And it, they, and it says, do not enter with mask or hoodie. So if so, you are now trespassing. We will call 911. And I'm like, the fuck is this? So I immediately go, and I'm not going to this store. And I realize that this is just happening in this neighborhood. And they were, the neighborhood was treated like they were goddamn animals. Yep. And I tweeted out, black privilege. <laughs> black, uh, yeah, because I was like, I guess this is that black privilege that they were talking about, right? This is, this is obviously the black privilege, right? Well, it's true. We've managed, we've managed to ratchet up the intensity of an article of clothing. Think about that. I mean, life, white folks wearing hoodies and not, didn't do anything for the hoodie. But black people with hoodies? Man, we're all like Dr. Doom and Darth Vader now. It's kind of cool, eh? Black privilege, eh? Is having, black privilege is having your communities treated like zoos and its inhabitants treated worse than animals. Damn. Yeah, I wasn't amused. <laughs> And so this is so I, I I'm I'm actually uh, uh uh pointing this stuff out uh because one like someone was like someone got really froggy with me when uh and they were like listen man that that there's tons of posters like that and I'm like and, and it's been it's not new so I don't understand why you're upset by it and I'm like whoa first of all that's ridiculous so if I don't if, if I didn't see something before I shouldn't be upset when I find out if I found out it was up actually up for a while. No, that's idiotic. Uh, and I don't, I don't care if they started posting those signs 40 years ago. I don't give a fuck. It's still problematic. Because you know what? You don't see signs like that in neighborhoods that are not of color. The response I ended up putting out when people were defending this, uh, or defending the, uh, the, uh, the idea behind this type of uh, 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 sign, was I said, one, you can't or better than yet shouldn't regulate someone's clothing based on a few idiots. If someone is acting menacing in your store, wearing a hoodie up or not, of course you call the cops, telling customers that they are guilty upon entering your establishment based on a fashion choice is wrong. Two, I can and will blame businesses who treat an entire community based on the lowest common denominator. Of course you can, you need to protect your business, but you don't get to treat me shitty because you're scared. Move your business or learn to treat your clientele with respect. You, your right to run a business does not supersede respecting the customers. Three, whether or not a sign, uh, the signs popped up yesterday or 30 years ago, it's a lot, it shows a lack of respect to the folks who depend on the establishment most. Four, this isn't how it works in every store. If you don't believe me, watch a neighborhood in the midst of gentrification. You know that store that didn't stay open until I'll let you in after nine and uh, you had to speak through the bulletproof glass? All of a sudden, it's open till midnight. A lot of disrespect <laughs> is doled out on the basis of, well, just don't seem suspicious. Who the hell decides what suspicious is? And why do these signs of suspicion regularly point at to young, brown, and black kids? No matter what you
I'm Matt Rothschild, the editor of the Progressive Magazine, with my progressive point of view, which you can also grab off our website over at progressive.org. The ACLU just put out a devastating report this week that shows how racially biased our judicial system actually is and how crazy the war on drugs is. The ACLU studied marijuana arrest records by race between 2001 and 2010. It found that blacks were almost four times more likely than whites to be arrested for marijuana possession, even though blacks and whites use marijuana at comparable rates. In Wisconsin, blacks were arrested at more than six times the rate of whites. This level of racist law enforcement is astonishing, or at least it should be. But the ACLU's data is actually in keeping with other studies over the last decade that show how biased our system is not only in arrests, but also in prosecutions and in sentencing. If you're black, I suppose the latest report isn't shocking at all. Fact is, we simply do not have equal justice under the law in America. And the war on drugs has become in large part a war on black males, stunting their career options and their life chances. It also happens to be a huge waste of resources. In 2010 alone, there were 889,000 marijuana arrests around the country, and 780,000 of them were just for possession. That year, states spent more than $3.5 billion enforcing the laws against possessing pot. The ACLU says it's time to end the failed war on marijuana and it's time to legalize possession. I say it too. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. Because if you know the history of the whole concept of whiteness, if you know the history of the whole concept of the white race, where it came from and for what reason, you know that it was a trick and it's worked brilliantly. See, prior to the mid to late 1600s in the colonies of what would become the United States, there was no such thing as the white race. Those of us of European descent did not refer to ourselves by that term really ever before then. In fact, in the old countries of Europe, we had spent most of our time killing each other. We didn't love each other. We weren't one big happy family. The side of my family that comes from Scotland, hell, they didn't even worry about fighting people outside of Scotland. Highlanders and lowlanders just fought the hell out of each other. So there was no white race, but in the colonies of what would become the United States, what did we see in the 1660s, 1670s? We began to see that Africans of indentured servant status, many of them not enslaved yet, they were not necessarily permanently enslaved. Some were, others were indentured like many poor Europeans for periods of seven to 11 years. They could work off their indenture and then they would be free labor technically. Realized, as did the white indentured servants, the Europeans who hadn't even been called white yet, that they had a lot of things in common, like the fact that they were all getting their clock cleaned by the elite. And so they would get together more than our history books taught us to foment rebellion against the elite, to try to get a better deal for themselves on the basis of economic necessity and economic justice. And what did the elite do when you see that you're outnumbered by black and white folks who are 
penniless, landless, peasants, you have to do one of two things. You either have to kill them all, but you can't do that because who's going to work? Rich folks weren't going to. They had to get poor people to work. The whole point was to be a person of leisure back in those days. That was the goal, was not to work. So you couldn't kill them all. You didn't want to kill them all. You had to do the work yourself. You had to build your own levy, build your own house. No, pick your own tobacco, harvest your own cotton. No, we're not going to do any of that. So you can't kill them, but you can co-opt them. And so the elite in Virginia, for example, in the colony, begins to give certain carrots to people of European descent saying things like, you know, we're going to let you own a little land. Not much, but just a little. And we're going to get rid of indentured servitude. Now you're free labor. And by the way, once you're free labor, you get 50 acres of land. Just because you're free labor, see? So we're going to cut you in on this deal. We're going to let you enter into contracts. We're going to let you testify in court. And here's the best of all. We're going to put you on the slave patrol to keep those people in line, right? The idea was you're still going to get your clock clean. We still don't like you. We still aren't going to really empower you or change your economic subordination. But we're going to make you honorary members of this team. And you're going to help us keep those other people down. And so they got a little taste of power, and it did effectively divide and conquer those coalitions. Those rebellions began to stop almost instantly. Fast forward to the Civil War era. You have rich white folks in the South, where I come from, standing up and openly admitting that the reason they're prepared to secede from the Union, and the only reason they ever articulated publicly, ever, was to maintain and extend slavery and white supremacy not only where it already existed, but into the newly acquired, that is to say, stolen territories from Mexico to the West. That was what they said. Now we lie about it. We say it wasn't about slavery. That it was about states' rights. Yes, the right of the states to keep and maintain slaves. Exactly. But back then they had no shame. So they didn't try and cover it up. They openly said it. But once again, the rich didn't want to go do the work. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. They're going to get poor people to go fight for them. And the poor folks didn't even own slaves. Now think, how do you get poor people who don't even own the shirt on their back, let alone slaves, to go fight to keep your slaves for you? You've got to convince them that their skin is more important than their economic interest. Because think about it. If I am a farmer who has to charge you a dollar a day or two dollars a week to work on your farm and harvest that tobacco or pick that cotton, but you can get a black person to do it for free because you own them, who's going to get the job? Not me. In other words, slavery actually undermined the wages and the wage base, the economic floor of the typical white working class or low income person. But they were told if these people are freed, they're going to take your job. No fool. They got your job. That's the point. And so at some level, again, working class white people being harmed by white privilege, relatively being advantaged, right? Being given a leg up, being given a membership to the club, but in absolute terms being kept economically subordinated by the very thing that gave them a sense of superiority. How's that for irony? Then in the present era, this hasn't stopped. This is not ancient history. Now we have people running around insisting that we should close the border with Mexico because if we don't, the wages of working class people will continue to fall. The implication being that the only reason workers are paid like crap in this country is because the border is open. But if you believe that, you would actually have to believe that if that border were closed, that all these owners of capital and industry would just say, oh, well, you figured us out here. It's a raise. Do we really believe that the only thing keeping bosses from paying people more is the presence of low-wage, medium-semi-skilled labor from south of this artificial border? 
Is that really what we believe? We know that if that border is closed, it isn't going to be closed to capital. It isn't going to be closed to goods. If you have a border that can be crossed by capital looking for the highest return on investment or goods looking for the highest price, but labor is chained to its country of origin, how is that going to work to the benefit of working people? By definition, it doesn't. By definition, it immiserates the working class. Divide and conquer. But the best example of all, perhaps, in the contemporary era, in the greater New Orleans area after Katrina. Here you have two communities that were the most hard hit. The Lower Ninth Ward, mostly black community, 94% African American, about 40% official poverty rate. Heavy working class community. And right across the canal, St. Bernard Parish, Chalmette. 95% white, also working class, high levels of poverty. Economically, very similar. And at the end of the day, in those first few days of September 2005, more similar than they probably would have realized. Because when those levees broke, they all got their stuff jacked. They all got their stuff destroyed. But if you had asked white folks in Chalmette, and I've done it, who was the cause of the problems in the greater New Orleans area prior to that flooding, they would have pointed across that canal at those black folks wouldn't have called them black folks and would have said there. That's the problem. Seventy percent of the white folks in St. Bernard Parish voted for David Duke, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, former head of the largest Ku Klux Klan group in the United States when he ran for governor in 1991. Seven out of ten gladly voted for him because he was blaming black folks for all of their problems and they bought it. What's the irony? The irony is that while they were blaming black people for their problems, While they were blaming black people for the conditions of the greater New Orleans area in which they lived, nobody was paying attention, least of all they, to the fact that these white elite politicians, either in Baton Rouge or in Washington, whose job it was to secure those levies, to make sure that levy funds were spent in the proper way and that they were spent at all, those mostly white and mostly elite politicians did nothing. At the end of the day, it wasn't just the black folks in the lower ninth ward they didn't care about. They really couldn't have given a rat's ass about those poor and working class white folks either. And yet, when the people of Chalmette, people of St. Bernard Parish got back into session, first time they had a city council meeting, parish council meeting after the flooding, the lights aren't even on yet. The water isn't even hooked up. And the first order of business was to pass an ordinance saying that you couldn't rent property in St. Bernard Parish to anyone who wasn't a blood relative. Now, I'll leave it to your imagination as to why you'd want to pass a law. That law had never existed before, but now that it's been emptied out and you don't know who might come back, that's a damn good way to keep black people out, isn't it? Because if you're 95% white to begin with, if you pass an ordinance that says that, that's a great... You can't say no blacks need apply. You can't say no blacks allowed, but that was an ingenious way to get around the law. Now, they got caught. There was a lawsuit threatened, and they got rid of the ordinance. But my point in bringing it up is to say, once again, divide and conquer is working. These white folks in Chalmette need to march across that canal and join hands with the black folks who've been sitting there more than willing to work with them for an awful long time and march on Baton Rouge and march on D.C. and march on the Corps of Engineers and recognize their commonality of interest. But the whiteness and the lure of whiteness has tricked these have-nothing-in-their-bank-account white people into believing that they got more in common with the rich white folks on St. Charles Avenue that didn't lose anything in that flooding than they have in common with the black working-class folks who live about 500 yards away.
Hey Jay, what's going on? It's Chris from Colorado Springs. Hey, um, that Monsanto episode was awesome, and I was really struck by what Lee Camp said. Where is all the Christian outrage? You guys hate unnatural stuff, right? You claim gay marriage is unnatural all the time, and you're furious about it. So why aren't you up in arms about the tomatoes with the salmon jeans? Come on, get off your asses and start holding crosses up at soybeans like they're vampires. About the where's the Christian outrage, because I've been trying to think... I listen to a lot of citizen radio, and they talk about the agriculture a lot. And they're trying to think here in the Midwest where I live, you know, how to get people to obviously fundamentally disagree with my worldview, liberalism, progressivism, um, but how to get them to see, you know, just simply morally that what we do to animals and what we do to the earth as far as climate change and stuff is just wrong. And um, for some reason, I didn't connect the dots that, that Lee Camp did, and I'm so thankful I heard it because that's the perfect argument. You know, out here where I live, there's a lot of Christianity, there's a lot of Christian fundamentalism, and when you talk about animal cruelty, it falls upon deaf ears. They don't care. Animals, you know, human beings were given the light by God or whatever, and so it is us who dominate the earth, you know, and, and dominate what God has given us. They, they quote scripture about how God said to, you know, dominate everything around us. Anyway, I'm paraphrasing. But this argument that we are now using science, which is, you know, inherently not God-given, according to a lot of these Christian fundamentalists. This is the devil. Science is the devil from the pit of hell, right? And we are using that to modify what God has already created. What a genius argument. That's such a great way to get people morally upset. Because it seems that, you know, in my experience here, there are one or two minds. Republicans are either actually more or less good people, maybe a little misguided in their morals, but they stick by the moral ground. They, they're against abortion because they really think it is killing something. Okay, great. They believe that morally, and I think that doesn't make them bad people. I just think it makes them their morals a little misguided, in my opinion. So if we give them a strong Bible-based, even, moral argument against messing up the earth and messing with plants and animals, you know, even though we may be manipulating them in the process, I, I think that might actually help get more of those people on our side. And then, of course, there's the other thing Young Turks brought up about the Tea Party being upset about big government allowing special interest loopholes. Here comes the Tea Party! Well, at least one person. Dustin Siggins, he blogs for the Tea Party Patriots. From the perspective of citizens who want open, transparent government, though, that serves the people, however, the so-called Monsanto Protection Act, Section 735 of the Continuing Resolution, is one heck of a special interest loophole for friends of Congress. I love it that conservatives have opened their eyes and said, wait a minute, aren't we against crony capitalism? Because that's the other type of Republican, at least out here, the business Republican, who could care less, they put on the Christian front, but they could care less actually about morality. What they care about is the bottom line. And they're all about small businesses, supposedly. And, you know, if we could get them excited about how Monsanto is this jolly green giant of agriculture that is sucking up all these small business opportunities for the individual family farmer we always hear about, which actually only represents less than 2% of the population. But anyway, we can get them from two different fronts, maybe attacking the corporate middle. Because if there's one thing I've learned from your show, from the David Pakman show, from Citizen Radio, from Sam Cedar, it is that it's the corporations that are killing us. And if we can just get both sides, for different reasons, mad at these corporations, then we might actually be able to make some headway into this stuff. But anyway, uh, I really appreciate you bringing Lee Camp. 
into it because his, his opinion was it blew me away this morning when I listened to it. So, yeah, thanks for what you do, Jack. Keep it up. Bye. Jay, this is Steve from uh, Richmond, California again. On the clip that you played on the last uh, podcast of my voicemail, I could have sworn I ended it with saying, uh, and that shames me, when I uh, referred to all the uh, things I like about being white, being small advantages of white privilege. Didn't hear it, and uh, made me sound a little bit more uh, jackassy than I like to think of myself. And yes, it does shame me. Hey, Jay, what's going on? It's Chris. Um, just wanted to say, dude, that race thing was uh, that you just played was awesome. That was really cool. Thanks for sharing it, bro. Take care. Looking forward to the next episode. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, and I'm responding to the June 12th episode about the NSA spying. And I think one of the... One of the roots of this power that the government's getting is the kind of like Dick Cheney's 1% doctrine. One of the things to realize about our, our oath that people take when they join the government, the president, and everybody else, we don't protect, we don't swear to protect the physical health of every single American. We swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And that's an important distinction, is that the government is not here to physically protect each of our individual asses. It's here to protect our rights. And one of those rights is life, but also liberty, also privacy, also, you know, all of our other rights that we have. That's what the government is here to protect us from. So obviously, if a horde of invaders comes in, they will offend our rights. So we have collective measures to protect against a, a horde of invaders. But when you get this 1% doctrine, and, and the left is equally guilty of this with their, if only one child is saved by violating the Second Amendment rights of every single American, then that's cool too. And, and that also entails privacy rights being violated and things like that. When you get this 1% doctrine that the government can justify anything against all of our other rights, in, in the name of protecting our right to, to, to you know, physical safety, then you open up the door for this. And so this idea should be eradicated. The number one thing the government is here to do is to enhance our freedom, not to protect our butts. That's just part of enhancing our freedom is protecting our butts. So thanks and uh, enjoy the show. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. I uh, got several things I want to hit sort of rapid fire today. Uh, first, and just in response to, to the voicemail of the... Uh, the guy saying that he felt like his voicemail was uh, maybe deceptively edited or, or edited in a way that, that didn't give his full uh, sense of the the shame that went along with the acknowledgement of his white privilege. I just want to say that yes, you know, all of those messages were obviously edited uh, for for that segment. Uh, you know, I received around 20 messages that were all around two minutes long, so they all had to be drastically edited down. And, but, but everyone should rest assured that all of the white people who called in acknowledging 
their white privilege did so with great hesitation and discomfort and I, I felt like the context of the entire uh, exercise sort of made that point in, in a way so that I didn't have to have each individual caller make that point for themselves. So rest assured, uh, any white person you heard sounding uh, a little jackassy in its full context, really none of them did. <laughs> so, uh, so everyone can rest easy on that. Uh, secondly, I want to talk about uh, David Packman's Kickstarter campaign he has going on. I'm happy to help promote it. Uh, Dave's, I mean, he's a really interesting guy. He's, uh, you know, he does this show, the David Pakman show, gets featured on Best of the Left all the time. And first of all, he's the hardest worker I've ever met. Uh, that's why I love working with him because I know he's he's dependable in that way. But he's he's built this show. He's big on YouTube. He's partners with the Young Turks. He, you know, he does a good enough show that I'm happy to feature him regularly. And he does it all in this tiny little town in Massachusetts where, I mean, there's really no reason he should have been able to accomplish what he has coming from a, a small town. But that's the magic of the internet. Like that, that's what the internet has allowed him to do. But he's sort of reached this natural limitation by, you know, meaning that you can only make so many partnerships purely through the internet. Eventually you, you have to actually physically be in a bigger location where more partnership uh, opportunities exist. So you know, I've been talking to him about it behind the scenes and, you know, it really sounds like he needs to be in New York. And so in the same way that, you know, he and I and, and everyone else runs membership programs to, to fund the show and, and allow us to do what we do, he's at a point where he needs to make a big leap all at once. And so it's kind of a chicken and the egg. Like if he had more partnerships, he would be able to make the show bigger and better, but he has to be in New York to do that. But the size of the show limits his, you know, financial capability to just up and, you know, move the show from one place to another. So he's running a Kickstarter campaign, uh, or excuse me, it's an Indiegogo campaign, same concept. And so he's raising $25,000 and I wholeheartedly recommend that anyone uh, who who wants to support his show, you know, in a way that's uh, helping him make a giant leap forward and not just continue. Uh, you know, if you if you like his show, then this could be a big step for him. So just check out davidpackman.com, and there's a big Indiegogo banner at the top. You can click through. Uh, he, you know, he's giving away prizes as everyone does for fundraising campaigns like this. So check those out and uh, support if you feel so uh you know so inclined uh the next uh issue is netroots nation is coming up just a few days uh and so i'll be there as, as i am every year or have been every year for the last four or so and as is always the case it includes travel and logistics and craziness and so i just i take it as one of my days off for the year so the next episode that'll be posted will be a rerun but it'll be a good one and so you know, you should check that out. But um, as sort of a consolation prize to, you know, if you feel like that's not enough new content for you, I want to remind everyone that I, I've started a brand new bonus show for members. And, you know, it's a new project. I've only posted three bonus show episodes so far. But you combine, I, I, it's just occurring to me that the three of them together, it's about an hour. So if you feel like uh, missing a show for Net Roots is leaving you wanting, then, you know, I gotta say, I think the bonus episodes are, I mean, they're clearly different than a normal best of left episode, but I, I like them. I, I'm, I'm proud of, 
the things I've been talking about so far, and I think it's it's going well for a, a brand new project that's just started. So just a little reminder that if you want a little bit more content, Best of Left membership, of course, not only supports the show and helps me do all the, the regular shows that you know and love, but uh, I'm now giving back a little bit more with the bonus content and so on. So maybe sign up for a membership. Even though I'm on the road, I still certainly have access to email, and I'll get you all the details about all the bonus content uh, as quickly as I can. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're not already subscribed to the show to make sure you get every episode, make sure you do that. There are lots of easy ways. Of course, iTunes. You can use the standard RSS feed to subscribe subscribe however you like. Um, but also uh, Stitcher and, and other smartphone apps are becoming uh, the wave of the future. It's obvious. That's why Best Plus actually has an iPhone and Android app dedicated specifically to the show, so you can check that out as well. Uh, thanks especially to those who support the show directly, either by becoming a member, as I was saying, or making one time donations that absolutely is how the show survives stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on facebook and twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day you know except when netroots nation comes around thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Fine, fine, smell black and white. You took apart a picture that wasn't right. Pitch burning on a shining sheet. The only maker that you want to meet. A dying man in a living room. Whose shadow bases the floor. Who take you out in the open door. This is not my life, it's just a fun fact.